Welcome to the Hallucination Cafe. I'd like to take you on a journey to an alternative reality, a world of fiction, of horror, of science that doesn't exist. I'm your host, Shelley Ann Wooderson. This is episode four of the Hallucination Cafe, and we have a special treat for you tonight. This is a story by Richard Mueller, and it's called The Lurk. I'd been sitting on the edge of my bed for 20 minutes, staring out the window into a murky, wet pre-dawn when the alarm finally rang. As I switched it off, I heard the Navy clock in the hallway bong softly, twice. Two bells on the morning dog watch, 5 a.m. At least my clocks were in agreement. The morning damp, the lurk, as the locals called it, had gotten in under the windows, around the door seals, an almost palliable clammy wetness like fog, although there was nothing visible. It had just made the morning darker, the air thicker, my thoughts more confused, disjointed, less coherent, like they'd been back when I was drinking, an isolated loneliness with no night before. There had been times back in California when I'd awakened in my own bed with no memory of how I'd gotten home. It was good to have a new place, a new bed, a new life, even in a town of lurks and lonesome fogs. The cat was asleep at the foot of the bed, a black night spirit of a creature who looked at home in a town of grimy, steep-pitched gambrel roofs, eyeless steeples, sad towers and drooping widow's walks. Among the weathered buildings, the bare autumn trees seemed to be reaching towards heaven in vague supplication. It was as much like Southern California as the far side of the moon. I gave Her Highness a scratch. She sighed, stretched, but did not wake. I'd looked over the somber, cheerless settlement, spent three days renting an apartment, getting my car overhauled, filling out the paperwork, answering questions. I'd been photographed and fingerprinted, gotten my shield and given a piece which I probably wouldn't use. I preferred my thirty-eight Webley to the snub-nosed revolvers currently in vogue. At 8am I was to meet my new boss, Lieutenant Leclerc. Someone else might be feeling anticipation, excitement, or at least a good get-on-with-it outlook on the day. But I was not someone else. No matter how I read it, it felt like exile. The town's shabby business district folded itself around the municipal block like a sleeping mongrel dog. Police headquarters was on the southeast corner, a turreted stone pile that climbed three stories to end, crowned by a single round portal like the eye of a cyclops, and flanked by granite gargoyles perched on sharply steeping roof lines. I ate my breakfast in a brightly lit owl wagon across the square. The food was cheap and greasy but it beat my own indifferent cooking by a mile. Outside of two taxi drivers and an off-duty streetcar motorman, I had the place to myself. I finished my eggs, sipped my coffee, and stared at the payphone. The others had left. I'd blown out of Lalay without telling anyone I was leaving. A clean break, just me and the cat. My place wouldn't have a phone till next week. A cop needed a phone, but I had no thought of making any personal calls. Not yet, at least. And who would I call? Becky? She'd heard enough of me. My friends had disappeared when I'd hit the skids. My dad lived down the coast in New Jersey, but he didn't have a telephone. I'd write him a letter. As I scanned the paper for anything criminally interesting to a cop turn of mind, the door opened and two uniformed policemen stomped in. Big, brutal harness bulls, the kind you could find on almost any force in the country. Certified cement heads. Their type tended to strange personal beliefs and twisted morals that would have made them at home among the Huns who'd followed Attila. 
I never had much to say to such men in Los Angeles, and I had no interest in them here, so I went back to reading the story in the advertiser about a strangely mutilated dead whale that had washed up on the point. Hey, Larry, you ever see such a tie? Only a homo would wear a tie like that. I looked up. The two cops were staring at me like junkyard dogs at a porterhouse steak. I knew that look. School bullies all grown up with clubs and guns. Where'd you get that tie, queer boy? I set down the paper. I noticed that the counterman was shaking his head as if he'd seen this before. The tie in question was royal blue silk, hand-painted, with a sunset over a Pacific beach. Becky had given it to me in a happier time, and I was fond of it. The memories it contained bespoke a calm I seldom felt these days. I studied the two, who I mentally tagged as Tweedledum and Tweedledummer, then glanced down as if examining my tie. I got this in Los Angeles, I said, with as beatific smile as I could muster. A very nice lady gave it to me. Yeah, what's his name? Tweedledummer laughed uproariously as if this witticism was new or original, but his partner was looking as if he remembered seeing me, which was entirely possible, as I'd been in and out of the station several times the day before. I smiled flatly, then blew air out of my cheeks. Okay, you've had your fun. Now shove off. Their smiles vanished as they shifted into second gear. Big, mean cop's gonna teach smart guy a lesson. They moved in on my table. Who do you think you're talking to, Four Eyes? Dummer asked. The other one was still trying to figure out where he'd seen me. That expression on his face was of a man sitting on dynamite who'd just smelled smoke. I folded my reading glasses and slipped them into my shirt pocket. As I did, I could feel the Webley shift in its shoulder holster. Nobody. I think I'm talking to nobody. Maybe we should take you out back and teach you a lesson. I have to get to work, I said. Suppose you come up to my office and teach me there. Tweedledum was definitely aware that the rules had changed. He reached out his hand toward his partner, but his dumber twin pushed on. Office? He's got an office. Hang on, Frank. That's right, Francine. You and your fat girlfriend come up to my office and we'll see who leaves on his knees. The thing about playing chicken is you have to know when to flinch. As Frank raised his nightstick to brain me, I whipped the Webley out and pointed it straight up his nose. He froze, snarling, his eyes wide and dark with hatred. You just drew down on a cop, you jerk. Wait till I get you in a cell. I don't think so. I pulled out my shield and flipped it open on the table. They both stepped back. You're a cop! That's what I was trying to tell you, Frank. I saw him at the station yesterday. He took in a deep breath. Jeez, sir! Detective Sergeant Grimaldi. I forced a smile I didn't feel. Now suppose you run along and we'll forget this happened. After they left, I put a dollar on the counter. The cook pulled it towards him with a finger. Thanks. You really a cop? Uh-huh. Watch out for those two. They'll roll you for your wristwatch. It's a pocket watch, and they can have it, I muttered, looking at the thick mist swirling outside the window. Is it always this foggy in the morning? Most of the time. Folk around here call it the lurk, always have. He scratched his jaw. You knew around here? Yeah. Well, you don't want to go out in it. Got to, I said. I got to go to work. An ashen shadow crossed his face. He leaned toward me. Then stick to the sidewalk. Walk from street light to street light. Stay out of the park. I'm serious. People disappear in that soup.
He sounded like he meant it, so I thanked him and stepped outside. The air felt wet, thicker than any Pacific fog, clinging to every surface like the damp clutch of a sweating hand. The smell was moist, metallic, and pungently bitter. The nearest street lamp was a faint pinpoint of incandescence off to the left. To the right, the way I'd have to go to reach the police station, it was dark. The lights must be out. I could barely see across the street. As I watched, a streetcar materialized out of the pearlescent gloom and drifted by, metal wheels reverberating softly as its headlights ghosted through the ivory mist. The car's interior illumination flickered. Its destination board read, Asylum. I could see no one aboard besides the motorman. The bell rang twice softly. Then the car vanished as silently as it had come, its pole shedding sparks. I knew that the police department was directly across the park, so I decided, against the owl cook's advice, to hoof it straight through. I'd seen the town square in daylight, and it looked less than ordinary. I guess I wanted to see what the big deal was. I've always been a bit reckless and stupid that way. Walking carefully, I stepped over the curbs, cobbles and rails until I reached the far sidewalk. A huge tree loomed out of the lurk, a monstrous oak with twisting roots that had lifted the sidewalk, as if to remind us how nebulous our mastery of nature was. At the base of the tree, a flagstone walk led into the park. Visibility was down to a few feet, so I set out carefully, making sure to stay securely on the curving path. There were few points of light in the darkness, probably flame-shaped glass bulbs on tall concrete plinths, like the street lights. although the lanes seemed to be curving away from them. I picked my way through, feeling for the stones with my feet and swinging my vision from side to side. Then my foot hit grass. I tapped around, but the sidewalk had run out. Damned funny way to lay out a park, I thought. The dark shapes of bushes crowded in around me. I was in a cul-de-sac. I fumbled out a wooden match and struck it with my thumbnail. One of the bushes must have been a shadow because, off to the right, the way now appeared to be clear. I glanced at the two park streetlights, which now were further to the left than they'd been a moment ago. I felt as if I was losing my bearings, that the map was being redrawn under my feet. I heard a rustle of brush and something between the light and my vision, and then a second something. I headed off in the open direction. As heavy as the lurk was, I thought I could see a lighter patch ahead, hopefully the lights of the municipal block. Then a voice hissed out of the blackness, a deep moan, long and infinitely sad, like the dreamy exhalations of a prisoner deep in hell. My breath caught in my throat. Shaken to the depths of my soul, I drew my revolver for the second time that morning. I felt rather than saw them moving in on me, swirling clouds of luminescent foulness, with something solid and malevolent in their centres. Gripping the Webley in both hands, I pivoted first in one direction and then the other, knowing that if the gun's barrel contacted anything, I'd probably shoot out a sheer panic, but there was no impact. Only the rush of cold air and a moan, like the sound of hot metal being cooled too fast. The shrieks that followed may have been in my mind, but it was enough for me. I lowered my head, led with my left shoulder and ran, but caromed off something large and rubbery, which scrabbled at my shoulder, then yielded, sending me in a different direction. Suddenly my feet touched a flagstone path again, and I had to stop short to avoid a street lamp on the sidewalk. I was out of the lurk, although I could still feel its horrible vibrations behind me. Looking back, I saw luminous clouds fading away in the pre-dawn darkness. Across the way, the blue globes of the police station glowed softly, and beyond the yellow lights, the windows presaged the dawn. 
Cops were coming and going. I legged it through the front door and was once again amongst the reassurance of the man-made world. The entry hall of the police station looked like cop shops everywhere. Dark wood, high ceilings, a few people on benches who would wait forever to be heard, and a tall podium behind which the desk sergeant sat like a medieval judge. A good desk sergeant remembers every face he sees. Sergeant Pitt looked down at me, smiled, and said cheerfully, Sergeant Grimaldi, what the hell happened to you? I came through the park. Bad idea. You might want to clean up before you meet the chief. He hooked a thumb in the directions of the toilets. Nice tie, though. In the mirror, I could see what he meant. My hair was disheveled, my suit disordered, worst of all was on my left shoulder. At first, I thought it was green paint, but it had a greasy feel, and the way it affected my fingers made me feel vaguely ill, as if I'd touched the back of a leech. I scrubbed it off my hands with some difficulty, and placed a wet handkerchief to cover the spot on my jacket. But all that succeeded in doing was to transfer part of the stain to the handkerchief, which I dropped in the trash. Then I stripped off my coat, folding it carefully so the green slime couldn't make it any worse, or God forbid stain my shirt. Deciding that I'd made all the improvement possible, I draped my coat over my arm and went to see the chief. Chief Asa Boatwright was built like a harbour seal. He snorted through his thick moustache, welcomed me aboard, criticised me for not wearing my jacket, and said that he hoped I'd last longer than Lieutenant Leclerc's last sergeant. Then, with a curious admonition not to take any crap from Leclerc, he sent me up to the third floor. Leclerc's office was at the head of a steep flight of wooden stairs that seemed longer than they first looked. The name Leclerc was written on a card which was tacked to a paintless door. I knocked. Who dare? came a deep bass voice. Sergeant Grimaldi. You better be coming in, then. I opened the door. The low-ceilinged room was sparsely appointed. A heavy wooden desk and chairs, three metal lockers, a bulging bookshelf, and a crucifix hung in the only window, the round one I'd seen from the street. A middle-aged negro in grey coveralls was sweeping the floor, but he stopped and looked me over critically, as if he was scrutinising a suspect. You be Mr. Grimaldi? Yes. He leaned on the broom handle with both clenched hands, his shoulders high. I, Henry, what you think of that? I stuck out my hand. Henry, I'm Peter. Nice to meet you. I shook his hand solidly. Wolfinger said you were a right guy, but when you've been in this town a while, you forget they exist. Henri Leclerc. You spoke to Wolfganger? And what happened to your accent? How do you think I got this job? He tipped the broom against the bookcase and undid his coverall. Under it he wore a white shirt, red and blue striped bow tie and a blue suit trousers. I'm sorry for the masquerade but I wanted to see how you felt about working with a negro. He pulled a double-breasted coat from one of the lockers and slipped it on. I'm Lieutenant Leclerc, as you have no doubt guessed. Actually, he was Lieutenant Henri Christophe Leclerc, head of the department's special section. His accent was a legacy of Haiti, where he'd grown up. When I unfolded my jacket, he clucked at the green. Ico ready. Ico? The essence of ethereal plasma combined with decayed human or animal tissue. The basic components of the reanimated dead. Did you come through the park? Yes, I... Ah. He pulled a bottle of cream-coloured liquid from his desk and sprinkled it on the green patch. Is there any more of it? I told him about the handkerchief in the bathroom. He excused himself and went downstairs to retrieve it. While he was gone, I examined his bookshelves. There was a collection of paper-backed and cloth-bound reference books and dictionaries, a few with thick leather covers, one of which was padlocked. 
I noticed that the names on their spines had been defaced with various colours of paint. As he came back in, I was looking at my jacket. The I-Corps had steamed and faded away. What is that stuff? Holy water and wombat milk. You're kidding. Yes, it's goat's milk. But the holy water is real. It removes the I-Corps. But uh, you'll need a cleaner to get the sour milk out. I understand you had a disagreement with some Lugaru. He'd taken me by surprise again. Yeah, back in Los Angeles. Wolfinger said you killed two of them with silver bullets and shot up some actor's mansion. He also said when you brought in the bodies, they were human. How come you're not in Alcatraz? I glared at him. I was growing tired of being blindsided. Their stomachs were full of human remains. Their garage had three butchered humans hanging up like sides of beef. Now suppose you just tell me what we're supposed to be doing in Arkham. And he did. We spoke for three hours, during which time I learned what Jack Wolffinger had gotten me into. The park in the town square was apparently perfectly safe and normal when the sun was up, or in those few and far between clear nights in Arkham. But in darkness, it was lethal. It hadn't always been so. In 1743, a local ne'er-do-well named Bartholomew Kerwin had vanished in Africa. He'd crewed out with a blackbirder in the triangle trade, New England to Africa to pick up slaves, on to Jamaica to sell them, and back to New England with the profits. But after two trips, his ship, the Witch of Arkham, had failed to return. Five years later, Kerwin arrived on the coach from Boston, decked out a newly purchased finery and bought a house that stood where the park was now located. Three generations of Kerwins lived in that house, and they were, by all accounts, a desolate lot, throwing lavish public parties and hosting private gatherings of a more blasphemous nature. If it had been a hundred years earlier, they would have perhaps been persecuted as witches, but the town had settled down, and as the Kerwins were good customers and business was business, they were tolerated. In 1777, Continental and British troops had skirmished in the Miskatonic Valley, and Arkham had changed hands four times. During that last exchange, the Kerwin house had caught fire and burned to the ground, presumably with the last Kerwin still in it. The ground lay untended for years until it was claimed that Joshua Kerwin, the last of the old scoundrels, had owed money to the city in the form of unpaid taxes, and the block was confiscated. In the 1840s, it was dedicated as a park. And everything was fine until six years ago, Leclerc said. A storm drain had become clogged by the confluence of invading tree roots. When the city crew tried to dig it out, they broke into the sub-basement of the old Kerwin place. In it they found some artefacts, including a small wooden box, which was stolen by one of the workmen. He left town but was later found dead. The box disappeared, and a few days later, at the next full moon... The lurks appeared. Something in that box was let loose. Perhaps the Kerwins themselves have returned or some... We only have theories. He smiled, as if invoking a private joke. How does that sound to you? Like a bad fairy tale, I replied. And yet you were there. You saw them and you survived them. Henri explained that there were no curving flagstone paths, nor were there any lights in the park. The ones I'd seen were igneous fatui, will-o'-the-wisps, who led unwary trespassers into the lurk where they disappeared. We find no bodies, no bones, no possessions in the morning. They're just gone. How many people have disappeared there? Lecoq shrugged. In the five years since I've been here, eight. That we know of. 
People are always vanishing in this part of the state. I was beginning to understand that the word asylum on the streetcar's destination board might have had a wider context. Have you thought about bulldozing it or digging it up? Put in a parking lot? Tennis courts? Tennis courts in Arkham? No, they are in the very earth. They must be fought, not covered over, for they will break forth again. Leclerc said that many of the structures in Arkham, including the town square, were protected by the Arkham Historical Society, whose mandate was sacrosanct. Only God or the devil can overturn the arches, but it's a bigger job than that. The entire town, the entire Misconic Valley seems to be cursed. This part of the state seems to draw evil like flies to a sugar cake. Are you speaking metaphorically? Were those metaphors that grabbed you in the park this morning? Come here, I want to show you something. He walked to the wall and slid a tiny square of wood that I'd not noticed. Inside was the end of a dowel which he pushed in. With a clack, a wooden ladder dropped from the ceiling on counterweights. As it did, a pair of beams slid across the door to Leclerc's office, blocking it. After you. The attic held the real treasures, shelves of books, pamphlets, bound newspapers and journals, maps, scrolls tied up with ribbons and strings, and dozens of heavy wooden filing cabinets. Leclerc pulled a drawer out of what looked like a library card file. Pick a card, any card. I did. It was from Morgan Ramfer, an Arkham businessman with a collection of arcane symbols and letters after his name. Code? More like my own system of shorthand. It says that Morgan Ramfer owes a ship chandlery and a fishing sloop called the Red Snark. These symbols point out his history, but this is the most important signifier. C of G? Cult de Gouls. Come on, I buy you lunch. We ate four blocks away at a diner owned by an immense Portuguese man who served wonderful seafood. On the way, we'd walked through the park, now seemingly a harmless patch of green, and as Henri had said, I saw no curving flagstone walks or street lamps. As we ate, Henri gave me a crash course in the hidden history of New England's flirtation with elemental evil. There are elder gods and hidden races, most of them immensely alien and strange. When man rose in great multitudes with Jehovah and Jesus and the others, teachers, prophets, monotheists, the ancient forces fled under the sea and the earth, deep inside the very stones of the mountains, in coastal swamps and middens, where they await the time where they can re-emerge and enslave. Evil and greedy men still serve them. The cults de Gaules? Yes, among others. They bring the innocent and helpless to damnation in exchange for power. Evil feeds their hatreds and fears, makes the weak feel strong, the cowardly brave. In every way, they must be fought. Their names fill my file cabinets. I blew hot and cold on that one. I don't know, Henri. I just whacked a couple of werewolves. This sounds like a holy crusade. It is. A doomed holy crusade. Henri smiled and nodded. It may be, but if we are very careful and lucky, we may survive to fight again and again. I set down my coffee. I'm very fond of survival. You might say that I live for it, but I'm not sure that I'm ready to take on a pack of gods. But you believe what happened to you this morning? Yeah, Henri laughed. I don't expect that we shall tangle with any gods, just their minions. He placed a box of shells on the table. 
38 specials, silver, dum-dums, blessed in holy water, the best we have. I nodded, wondering how many partners he'd had before me, and just what had happened to them. By the time we walked back, the sun was going down over Aisby Episcopal Church and flashing like fire on the streetcar tracks. We stopped at Rugo's ice cream and bought a couple of cones. I love these things, my new boss said. We did not have these in Haiti, only flavoured ices. The shoeshine man by the bus stop was closing up his stand and the motor coach was pulling out for Kingsport. A truck went by with the Arkham Advertiser Evening Edition and Henri spoke well of Lawrence Tatillo, the editor. He walks a fine line here. He has to balance between the good in men's heart and the evil men do. Henri, did anyone ever tell you you sound like a Chinese fortune cookie? The clerk laughed. A misfortune cookie, perhaps. If I were in Boston, we would be talking of Irish gangsters. In New York, the Cosa Nostra. Here we have a much more elemental problems. Elder gods, I said skeptically. Do these elder gods have names? I will let you read their descriptions. We do not say their names aloud. Superstition. Did you ever hear of a superstition that was not founded in fact? Actually, I'd never given it any thought, but I decided not to tell him I lived with a black cat. At that moment, the streetlights came on. Watch, said Henry, pointing at the park. Regardez la gousse. We stood under the glow of a street lamp, watching mists form in the air. It was thickest in the park, the town square, almost immediately blocking our view of anything on the far side. The fog was coming in from the Mysticonic River, but in the wooded glen across the street, it was denser, like thick smoke. We are not certain how the haunting of the park relates to the Miskatonic fogs or their general overcast, but it seems the old ones have a long reach. Personally, I feel they are somehow related to the Negros who died on the ship, but as a Haitian, I am perhaps naturally prejudiced to this view. As he spoke, dark clouds cut off the full moon. It began to get chilly, and I wondered what we were waiting for. Then Henri said, Aha, he comes. A small black panel truck cut diagonally across the street, just missed a clanging streetcar and screeched onto the curb in front of us. On the door was painted a Christian cross in gold and the words, Catholic Dioceses of the Miskatonic Valley. The door opened and a diminutive man in a black cassock jumped out. His hair looked as if it had been cut round a soup bowl. He shook hands with my lieutenant, who introduced him as Frere Leon Martel of Our Lady of Sorrow's Church, although he looked anything but sorrowful. He veritably danced with excitement as he led us to the back of his truck. Inside were three backpack sprayers, the kind used for distributing chemicals or putting out small fires. I had to twist the archbishop's arms to get this much, he said, helping me on with the tank, which was heavy. He too had a French accent, but different than Henri's. I pegged him as a Canuck. Henri tested the spray applicator of his unit. This morning, the ghouls tried to grab the new sergeant here, Father. We're going to teach them a lesson. Father Leon thought this was a wonderful idea. I wasn't sure. And how are we going to do that? With holy water. Three of us? That's a big pack. No problem here. They shall come to us to steal our souls, and we shall send them back to hell, Father Leon said. It is easy, my friend. We've done this before. Henri handed me a little leather bag with a loop of string. Put this around your neck. It's a griri bag from the Vouron. The Holy Father does not approve, but I also wear the cross and the scapula. 
Father Leon was shaking his head. I have an extra rosary, he said to me. Are you a Catholic? Not really, I replied, slipping the Gregory bag around my neck. But if you think it'll help. And thus, armoured with other people's religions, I went forth to do battle with evil. As we stood on the corner of Kerwin and Federal, there was one more interruption, and it almost got me off the hook. Chief Boatwright came puffing along the sidewalk, his big shoes flapping, waving his hat. Leclerc, a moment. Yes, Chief. Henri glanced at me and raised an eyebrow as if to say this interruption was expected. Yes, Chief. I'd rather you didn't do this. I know. Boatwright stopped before Henri. Standing before the tall, thin lieutenant, the chief looked even more like a harbour seal than he had sitting down. At first, I mistook his agitation as concern for the clerk's welfare. You know I could order you not to. Put it in writing. Boatwright's moustache twitched like an angry caterpillar. If I do, you'll forward it on to them. Yes. Why can't you just leave well enough alone? Because that's how the evil ones win. Chief Boatwright made a sound like he was coughing up a hairball, his face red with frustration. I was certain he would order Henri to desist there and then, but he merely slammed his hat onto his head, looking at Father Martel and me in turn. He said, Father, Sergeant, try not to get yourself killed working for this insane cannibal. And he turned and stormed away. Go with God, Father Leon called after him. I looked at Henri. I had no idea what was going on. The chief hates for me to rock the boat, as he says. Because I am a negro from Haiti, he calls me a cannibal and other worse things. But I take my orders from other quarters. He smiled at his rhyme, adjusting the straps on his sprayer tank. He thinks we will just call up more trouble. Won't we? No, the way to attract more trouble is to ignore it. Do that and they will think you are weak. The greatest terror comes when we think we are safe. In the indices between our perceived security and our sanity. You'll get used to him, Father Leon whispered, and then in a louder voice, Shall we do God's work this night? We started forward in a V with Henri in the middle and Father Leon and I on either side. We moved out across the grass, the lurk coiled in or behind us, cutting us off from any view from the rest of Arkham. I remember Henri's earlier words. If anything went wrong, they would not even find our bones. Look sharply, Henri said softly. You will feel them before you see them. I remembered the cold air from the morning. Short bursts, conserve your water. A light appeared ahead. Ignace Fatuus, the little priest excitedly said as the light approached. Henri raised the nozzle of his sprayer. Ali, he cried, and threw a stream of holy water on it. With a steaming flash, the light went out, and I felt a blast of cold, angry air. Here they come, the priest cried, pumping the sleeve on his sprayer. Like a storm, clouds of concentrated evil swirled about us, resolving into forms, faces, fanged mouth, reaching claws and colours bilious and disgusting. They charged in with a howling sound, but I could not determine if it was real or in my head, for my ears ached and popped. Pain flickered through the muscles of my neck and jaw. My eyes were blurred and stinging. With each yank on the sleeve, a gout of holy water shot out. Its effect on the ghoulish horrors was instantaneous, as it might have been if a jet of boiling steam was to hit a flesh-and-blood man, literally carving its way through them, slicing the monsters apart with ferocious effect. 
They screamed and lunged for us, pressing in, trying to rake or bite. One grabbed the nozzle of my sprayer and tried to jerk it away, but a shot from Father Leon cut through his arm and drove it screaming into a blast from Henry. Three then surrounded Father Leon, and we doused him in spray to drive them back. The experience left the little priest shaken. Are you all right? He looked to be in pain. With God's help, I shall be, he said. And then, they come again. We retreated to a large tree and putting our backs to the boil and destroyed one fiend after another with chest shots that left smoking holes and caused them to collapse inwards. Some actually came close enough to rake us. One lunged at me, but I ducked away. Its fiendish claws carved great furrows out of the tree's bark. I cut off its head with my sprayer. As the things discorporated, their essence rolled and flowed downwards, pooling like ground fog or some deadly poisonous gas, and then without warning, my tank was empty. I'm dry. Your gun! screamed Henri. Shoot for the heads! I drew and fired, shifting targets, fired, shifting, fired again. I'm a good shot, and they made no effort to avoid my bullets. The silver thirty-eights punched through, but unlike the holy water sprayers, my bullets caused the fiends to explode spectacularly, spraying their foul green pus in all directions. As I reloaded, it suddenly ended. The air cleared, and above us the clouds began to break up, releasing the captive moon. Henry turned his sprayer on me. The slime, he explained. I'm afraid your clothing is ruined. This will keep the ichor from burning your skin and making you sick. Father Leon had sunk to his knees and was giving thanks to God for our deliverance, and when he was finished he was unable to rise. We lifted him gently under the arms and walked him to the edge of the park. Crowds of people were gathering, and I wondered if any of my slugs had gone on to hit anyone, but no one appeared to be injured. Two of Father Leon's parishioners hurried up, their faces dark with concern. Leon smiled wanly as Henri explained that their priest had been in direct contact with spiritual evil and what remedies they needed to make. Just before they carried him off to his church, Father Leon put his hand on my arm and said, Go with God. Henri made the sign of a cross. He'll be fine in a few days. The effect of such evil is particularly hard on the godly, but he is strong in his faith and well suited to resist its lasting effects. Lasting effects. If one dwells on the experience, it can disorder the mind. The results may be insanity, even death. He gave me a knowing look. But what better man to resist their attacks than a hard-nosed, hard-headed, gun-toting police detective, eh? I turned back towards the park, now looking like any town square in the moonlight. Only a few steaming patches of ichor disappearing into the night gave any indication that a supernatural Donnybrook had occurred. Is it always like this? I asked. I could feel the box of shells in my pants pocket. I'd fired off half of them, grateful I hadn't hit an innocent citizen. Henri shrugged. This was routine, but a good introduction to the job at hand. Peter, go home. Clean up, eat, sleep well. Come in late tomorrow and we'll see if you want the job. On the way home, I reflected on Henri's words. Hard-nosed, hard-headed, apparently I'd been hired for my lack of imagination, which he felt gave me a better chance of not going insane. Was he right? Only time would tell. I opened the door, threw my ruined suit coat on the floor and peeled off my shoulder holster. The cat was sitting on one of the arched windows looking out into the moon. And how was your day? She turned and regarded me as any cat might. Obviously, 
not as exciting as yours. You're a mess. Give me a break. I've been shooting ghouls. I know. I saw. She jumped onto the bed and settled down like a black sphinx. And don't even think of petting me until you've had a bath and thrown away those clothes. Everyone's a critic. I stripped off my trousers and vest and started the bathwater. Do you think I'm hard-nosed and hard-headed? <laughs> you ask as if that's a bad thing. Ah, I knew enough not to ask for clarification, but she wasn't finished. I will tell you something that may make the experience more satisfying for you. Oh? Each ghoul you destroyed released the soul of a slave who died in irons on that hell ship. As the little priest would say, you did God's work tonight. Good to know, thank you. The cat smoothed her whiskers. Enjoy your bath. I'm going out. And with that she turned and walked through the wall, leaving only a faint glowing patch which quickly faded. I sank down into the hot, soapy water, wondering if I could get the Arkham Police Department to spring for a new suit. Tonight's story was from the pen of Richard Mueller. His first contact with the Cthulhu Mythos was during his Coast Guard days when he'd sit on a light ship off of Cape Mendocino and read H.P. Lovecraft. Later, he wrote sci-fi, fantasy, horror, history, and animation. And lo, he still is. If you enjoyed tonight's story, please subscribe, write us a review, and catch us back next week for another story.